and thankful for this day. We're in Revelation 2. If you have your Bibles, go to Revelation 2. We're beginning in verse number 12, walking through uh, this book of Revelation. And uh, excited as we walk through this book uh, and uh, looking forward to what God has for us today. Talking today about the worldly church. Uh, the worldly church. Um, interesting when you talk about the worldly church and how that's so uh, uh, you know we, we, we act as though that's kind of a normal thought of the worldly church or the compromising church that's almost like saying uh, uh, the heavenly the, the, the heavenly uh, devil or the heavenly <laughs> you know it's it's like that doesn't that doesn't make sense it's not good to think of the church as if it's normal to be compromising, as if it's normal to be worldly. Uh, this is, uh, again, the third message that Jesus is writing to the seven churches that are recorded in chapter 2 and 3. And uh, it's interesting when you're talking about the message of Jesus Christ that he gives recorded in Scripture. When you're looking at the messages that Jesus Christ gives recorded in Scripture, uh, uh, the first one be being back in Matthew chapter number 4 and in verse number 17, Jesus' first message recorded in Scripture says this, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Uh, and then some uh, uh, look at the Great Commission uh, recorded at the end of the Gospels as if that's the last message that Jesus has recorded in Scripture, but it's not. Uh, we come to these messages in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter number 3, and he records these messages to the church. And, and five of the seven messages to the churches is a call to repentance. The common denominator between his first message and his last message is to repent. And uh, it's interesting when you talk about what the common denominator is, why in the world would he spend so much time? Is he just a God that's just a fuddy-duddy that doesn't want us to have a good time? To which I would say absolutely not. He wants us to have an incredible time. In fact, the Bible even tells us that he came so that we might have life and have it more abundantly. But he does call us to repent oftentimes, and the reason is for our own self-preservation because we are crazy people. We're prone to wander, and we will destruct, we will self-destruct if permitted and allowed to go where we want to go, when we want to go, that's just who we are by nature. Our nature has fallen, and, uh, and we're prone to wander. Uh, but the call to repent, a lot of times we don't understand even what the call to repent is. And, and I tell you, the call to repent is a very loving call that our Savior has for us because I want the best for you. It's, it's, it's as if we go out into the front parking lots of the church and, and our children are out there playing Red Rover, Red Rover, send Johnny right over across Pedrick. Uh, uh, we would call our children back. We would say, stop, come back, stop. You know, we would get them out of the road. Why? Because there's danger when you go out there and play. And I want the best for you as one of my children. Now, there's some children you might let stay out there. But nonetheless, what we're doing is, is when we talk about a call to repent, it's a call to, hey, come back where the land is fertile. Come back where it's safe. Come back where you can experience the abundant life. That's what the call to repentance 
is. In fact, the Bible says, I don't want you to be worldly. We ought not to be worldly or think that it's normal. Jesus, in his word, says, Romans chapter 12, the apostle Paul was writing, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove that the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, man, I want you to be sanctified. James, over in James chapter number 4 and in verse number 4, the Bible says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so God's word, he says, hey, I, I, I don't want you to wander away from me. I want you to be, come out from among the rest of the world. To be sanctified, to be set apart. You're my children. I want you to be the salt of the world. And yet, and yet what we do, I mean, think about it. If you have your own child, this is how we are. This is how we function. We are, have that, 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 that fallen nature that, again, is prone. If we went outside, using the illustration from earlier, and you have a little child, and the rest of the children are out playing in the street, they would want to go. Man, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go. That's what I mean by being prone to wander. Doesn't matter if I, if I self-destruct. I want to go there. And God help us understand that, man, life is found in him. I don't want to be a worldly member of the church. I don't want to be a compromising Christian. And that's exactly what was happening here in the church at Pergamum, the worldly church. Uh, Revelation 2, verse 12 and following. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write... The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some in the same way who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, verse 16, repent or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I, uh, to him I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. And so this morning, just talking about this message to uh, the worldly church, Jesus identifies himself once again to each one of the seven churches uniquely. Uh, it's interesting when you look. It's, 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 he's taking characteristics that are mentioned from the first vision in chapter number one of the book of Revelation, and he uses them to introduce himself to each church very much individually. And I believe the reason for that is because we have a God who knows exactly where we are, exactly what we need, and meets us personally right where we are. And I'm grateful that we have a God that does that for each and every one of us. And so to the church, when, you, when you're talking about the churches that he's been writing to, to the, to the loveless church at Ephesus, he says, man, I, I know intimately your hearts. I know I'm dwelling with you near and dear. And then he goes on to the next church, to the church at Smyrna. And uh, the, the church at Smyrna, if they had a theme song, it would be, nobody knows the troubles that I have seen. It was the persecuted church, and Jesus, in, in addressing them, he says, oh, but I do, I know, I know, I died and have 
raised from the dead. I know what it means to be persecuted. I was crucified, and yet I live again. And so he identifies himself, and he comes alongside of his hearers. Now, in this particular church, this is the first time that we have basically a warning in the introduction. He says, the one with the, with the sword, the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. He's saying, hey, listen, there's a time and a place. Sometimes we need exhortation. Sometimes we need love. Sometimes we need to be heard, but sometimes we need to be disciplined. And he's saying, hey, listen, the one with the two-edged sword. In other words, it's a reference to his potency and his power. In fact, the Bible says over in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter uh, uh, number 4 and verse number 12, Hebrews 4 and verse number 12 and 13, the Bible says it uh, like this. <clears throat> For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And then in Revelation 19 and verse number 15, we have another reference talking about the word of God and equating it to a sword. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the almighty. And so he's just simply saying, hey, I'm warning you with his word. In other words, I will come and deal with my people, if necessary. So, when you're talking about this letter, a couple of things I want to pull out as we move forward. First of all, talking about the town, the town of Pergamum, sometimes referred to as Pergamus, but Pergamum uh, was the first town that wasn't a seacoast town uh, that's being written to, about 15 miles inland. But nonetheless, when you're talking about this specific place, it was a unique place, uh, an interesting place uh, for several reasons. Uh, one is that it was the capital of Mysia, but, but when you're talking about uh, this city, it was noted for several different things. Number one, it was a great education center, had the second largest library on the planet at that given time, second only to Alexandria. In fact, in fact some, some say that this is what took place. And I believe it took place, but I'm not sure. Uh, but they said that what happened was this library had over 200,000 volumes in it. So it was an education center, right? And so we know that anytime you have higher education centers, it is a very liberal place. And so they have these volumes, and, and the king of Alexandria, they were giving them paper, and they stopped giving paper because they said, we don't want you to continue to grow. And so, and so over in Pergamum, what they did is they created, uh, they created parchment or animal skin, and that's how they began to write. In fact, the very city name Pergamum means parchment. And so it, it, it's, it's just something that they use. So it's interesting, though. Again, higher education center, they were noted for that. Not only that, they were a religious center. In fact, we talked uh, last week about the polytheistic approach that these Romans would have. Uh, they would look and, and they would say, man, we, 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 we embrace all kinds of different gods. They celebrated all kinds of different gods. In their city, they had four different temples to four major gods, the temple of Zeus, Dionysus, Athena, and Asclepius. And then they not only did they have the four temples to the various gods, they also were very much involved in what we referred to last week as emperor worship. So they had three different temples in their city that were built to worship the Caesar, the God of their day, uh, 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 emperor worship. In fact, last week when we made reference to <clears throat> what they would do is they would come in there once a year, and the purpose was so that the state could control the people. Imagine that. 
So the state wanted to control the people, and they said, hey, when you come in here to worship, what we want you to do is you say, Caesar is God. And there were those that wouldn't compromise. Said, no, Jesus is God alone. Jesus is Lord alone. And so they had these religious uh, culture. Uh, but even though there's this religious culture, it's interesting. And, and what's interesting about that is that <clears throat> as long as we talk about God, we're A-OK. But you mentioned Jesus Christ, and that doesn't fly. So this city was not only noted for their education and as well as their religious, they were also a medical center. Asclepius was the god of healing. In fact, it, he, he was, he was uh, represented by a snake. In fact, in his temple, they even had snakes slithering around in their temple. So they kind of mixed a little bit of, of, of medicine with, with superstition. But they were, robbing, they were robbing the ultimate healer of his glory. And so, and so people would come to the city and say, man, we need this special healer, this special kind of healing. And that's when Jesus, writing this letter to this specific group of people living in this place, said, hey, you know where you guys are living? Where you're dwelling? You're dwelling where Satan's throne is. You're, 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 you're actually living in hell's headquarters. You're living on the doorsteps of the devil. That's exactly where you are located. It is dark. It is dark. And this morning, I, I think that when we talk about where we're dwelling, where we're living, there's some people that are dwelling in hell's headquarters today. Some dark places. It might, it, hey, it might even be your home is a dark place for some. It might be that the place where you work is a place where you feel like Jesus is definitely not welcome here. It's a dark place. It might be the school that you're in. School is a very, very dark place. The place where Satan rules. And that's what he's saying here. And a lot of times what happens to us is when we find ourselves in those dark places... Sometimes we just long to get out of here. And we say, man, I, I just want out of here. In fact, when you look at Titus, the little letter uh, in the New Testament written to Titus, uh, Titus was placed over uh, in Crete. And, and, and here's, it, here's what they said about these Cretans. Uh, Titus chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, uh, it says this. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. <laughs> what a reputation. This testimony is true, is what God's word says. And then he goes on from there. And so when you have Titus, the Apostle Paul's writing to Titus. Why? Because Titus was struggling a little bit. Why was he struggling a little bit? Because Titus was a pastor there, and he was saying, man, could you, could you, could you by chance send my resume to a search committee somewhere else? Because this is crazy right here. These people don't want me here. They don't want truth here in this place. And he was longing to be removed. But this morning, if you are placed in a dark spot, could it be that God has placed you there to shine light because, man, light is desperately needed in dark places? God, help me. God, help me not this long to get moved out of my place, but understand, hey, maybe I am living 
in a dark spot. God helped me to shine. There were those in this church that shined. In fact, the Bible goes on in this, in this little letter as Jesus is writing, and he talks about the testimony of some of the church in verse number 13. He says, man, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And he's not condemning them for that. He's just saying, I, I, I recognize the darkness where you live. And you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And so he begins with this testimony, given a commendation. And he says, hey, you've been loyal to my name right where you are. You've been loyal to my name. Why would he say that? Well, because it would be very easy for self-preservation just to talk about God and not Jesus. And he's saying, even in spite of them not wanting to hear my name, you've been faithful to me. And I applaud you for that. Why is it that the name of Jesus is not often welcome? Because there's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. The Bible says over in the Gospel of John, in the Gospel of John, in chapter number 14, and verses 13 and 14, John 14, verses 13 and 14, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And so prayers are answered in his name. In Matthew chapter number 18, in verse number 20, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And so when we're talking about his name, it's a promise of his presence in his name. Acts chapter number 4 and verse number 12. Acts 4 and verse number 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So there's salvation in his name. There's power in the name of Jesus. And he says, hey, you've been loyal to my name, and I applaud you for that. Why? Because oftentimes it's not wanted, the world doesn't want to hear the name of Jesus. God help us to be faithful to his name, but not only to his name, but you've been loyal to my faith. What do you mean loyal to my faith? Well, here's what I mean loyal to my faith. You've been loyal to the to what we would call the essentials of the faith, the essentials of the faith. You've been, you've been loyal to understanding that, man, the, the, the Bible, the scriptures are inerrant. They are infallible. That They are God's word. Therefore, they are authoritative in every area. In other words, you have embraced everything written therein, that God Almighty created the heavens and the earth, that God Almighty took on flesh and was born of the Virgin Mary, that he lived a sinless and a spotless life. And he who knew no sin took my sin. And we believe in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That he took my place, that he took my sin upon himself and paid the price that I owe for my sin. He was my substitute on the cross. And that not only did he die on the cross, but three days later he rose up from the, from the dead Physically, not only did he raise from the dead physically, he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. And one of these days, he's coming again. There's only one way to be saved, and that's through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's, that's what we believe. And he says, man, you've been, you've been faithful to what you believe. You've been faithful to my name. You've been faithful even in the days when Antipas was martyred. Who was Antipas? We don't know a lot about Antipas, but we know this, that anti means against, and, 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 and then the word pause means everything. In other words, he was one that opposed the ways of the world. That's who he was. We don't know a lot about him. 
but we know that he was faithful to the end. In fact, the Bible says over in Romans, and in, in the book of Romans in chapter number 3, in verses number 3 and 4, Romans 3, verse 3 and 4, What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written. What was the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying, hey, you make sure you're on God's side. You make sure you stand with God. Even if the world is against what you're talking about, you stand with God. And that's exactly what Antipas did. Antipas was one who was willing to lay down his life. Why? Because God said, you are the salt of the world. You are the light of the world. And I believe that Antipas, if he could speak to us today, he would say, hey, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. I'm not hiding it under a bushel. <laughs> Why? Because the one who saved me is worthy. And he called me to shine. Therefore, I will shine come what may. The testimony of the church. Now, not everybody in the church was faithful. He goes on and he says, but there's some issues. There's some issues of, of, of things that you've tolerated and so the tolerance of the church is given to us in verse number 14 and 15. He says, but I have a few things against you because uh, you have there some who hold the teaching of Baal, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. You also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so he talks about two different issues that they had, the teaching of... Balaam, And when you're talking about Balaam and Balak, you have to go back to Numbers and read the story of Balaam and Balak. And, and it's an interesting story when you read the story. And what's he saying? Here, here's what he's saying. Balaam was a prophet of God. And unfortunately, Balaam was worried about his pocketbook. And so, and so Balak went along, and Balak, the king of the Moabites, a, a, a foreign king, came and he said, man, I'm, I'm going to pay you some money so that you can curse. Call down a curse from God on a children of Israel. That's what he did. And so, and so this, this old sorry prophet, this old sorry prophet was more concerned with his pocketbook than being obedient to God. And so he formed an allegiance with the government. That's what he did. You know, there was COVID relief funding that came out not long ago. And God helped the churches who function like they're a charitable organization, charitable organization rather than the children of the living God. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, hey, church, hey, my people, go and be dependent upon the government. Go and, go and walk in step in allegiance with your government. And you see where the church is today if you're studying the church today. And the church has formed allegiance with government. And as a result, we need to repent. That wasn't where I was going to go. Balaam, Balak said, hey, I'll, I'll pay you off. He took the money. And, and he was trying to call down a curse from God, but God wouldn't let him curse the people. And, and, and eventually, you know, what, you know what the sorry prophet did? 
Balaam said to Balak, he said, well, I tell you, man, I can't call down a curse, but I tell you what we can do. If you just get some of those Moabite good-looking ladies over there, go and dwell with those people, let them intermingle, after a while they're going to compromise. And when, the, when, when God's people compromise, God's going to curse them. And that's what happened. 23,000 God killed for living like the rest of the world, for embracing the ways of the world. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter number 6, in 2 Corinthians <clears throat> in chapter uh, number 6, I've got so many different cross-references today, I'm not even sure where they are. <laughs> Let me read this one to you. Second, do we have it on the overhead by chance? 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 and following. The Bible says it like this. Let me read it to you. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and don't touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be as sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So they were intermarrying with pagan people. They were committing acts of fornication, living like pagan people live, compromising, worldly. So you got some that are there, and then, and then you got some that have embraced the deeds of the Nicolaitans, embraced the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which when you're talking about the Nicolaitans, they were a people that were given to a, what we would call a licentious lifestyle, uh, uh, but what they were doing is they were replacing God's word with their own opinions and ideas. In fact, they even got into the leadership of the church. The very word Nicolaitans, Nike means victory. And so when you're talking about victory, victory of what? The laos over the, over the people, victory over people. And so they created their own type of Christianity is what they did. Anytime man begins to Say you're responsible to me. It creates issues. And so the leadership of the church got messed up. And they lowered the standards of God. And they became worldly. That's who they were. In fact, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 23, in verse number 9, it says, hey, don't, don't call me father. Don't call anybody father. Why? Because we're brothers and sisters. God established his church, not so that any man, in fact, he established his church, and he said, you know what you have as a church? You have the priesthood of the believer today in this new covenant. Therefore, you don't have to go to a priest any longer. Jesus is your priest, and he's my priest. You don't have to go talk to a priest, any type of hierarchy like that. It corrodes the church. So this church was struggling. Church needs to be built on God's word. Why is a church a strong church? You show me a church that's built on God's word, and I'll show you a church that's strong. The treatment 
for his church. So he goes on in verse number 16 17, says, repent, repent. Stop. Stop living worldly. Stop compromising. Come back to my word. He says, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. I'm going to deal. I'm going to deal with foolishness. God doesn't wink at sin, and he doesn't overlook sin. In fact, the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that he disciplines those that he does love. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. To him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. <clears throat> and so he says, there's a twofold promise. There's a twofold promise. I will give hidden manna, first of all. What's the hidden manna? He said, man, there's going to be sweet, sweet fellowship with Jesus. He, he's talking about... Back in the Old Testament, if you go back to the Old Testament in the days of Moses, God Almighty gave manna from heaven that fell to the ground. And what they did is they went out there and they took some of that manna and put it into a little golden bowl. And they took that little golden bowl and they took the manna and they placed it into the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant then was taken over into the Holy of Holies in a secret place. And it was a representation, it was a representation of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, hey, listen, he will be your sustenance. He will be your sustenance. There will be sweetness in his presence. He will satisfy every need that you have along the way. Because you haven't abandoned him. Therefore, he comes in a special way. But then he says this. He says there's a white stone with a new name written on it. <clears throat> That's an interesting one. <laughs> you know, when you're studying, and I'm sure that some of you have studied and read this passage of Scripture, and, uh, and you want to know a lot about this thing, and I would say it's interesting because uh, let me tell you some things that are possibilities. Let me give you some possibilities. Number one, when some people, and, and, and these are taking out of the Roman culture, in which the recipients would have understood each one of these and, and possibly made connections with these. And so it could have been possibly a victor's stone given to an athlete who wins in competition. They would receive a stone, much like a plaque, today we might call it that, uh, with their name written on it that would gain them admission into a victor's celebration uh, uh, feast, a banquet. And so, and so some would say, well, that's exactly what it is for these that have overcome it is, a, it is a white stone that is kind of like the invitation to an athlete who has won and they're invited to a banquet, a feast. And I would say, man, that's, that's biblically correct for believers. I would agree with that, and that's a possibility. Uh, then there are those that would say, well, it's actually a stone of acquittal. In other words, sometimes a judge would take stones, a black stone if they were guilty, a white stone if they were deemed acquitted of their guilt, and, and, and so this white stone would be an acquittal of their guilt. And so I would say, well, that's true of every believer along the way. And so I would say grateful to God for that one. And that's not a false interpretation at all. That's just one way to, again, embrace what he's saying in this letter. Uh, another one would be <clears throat> that this is some kind of a covenantal relationship that oftentimes two people would enter into as friends. They would enter into, into a covenantal relationship 
in which they would take this white stone and they would write their different names on either side of it, have the stone cracked, and then they would say, you know, what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine, and everywhere I go, I'm taking part of you and you're taking part of me, and we're entering into this covenantal relationship to which I would say, yeah, that's true in the believer's life as well. In fact, the Bible tells us over in Philippians chapter number 4 and in verse number 19, and my God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory. And so we have that. We have each one of those things. And those are possibilities. And I was reading and praying through this. And I just, God, what, what are we talking about with this white stone? Obviously, he tells us, the new name that's been written on it, you won't know till you receive it. I wish I could give you an answer this morning. I don't know. I don't know what this is. But I don't believe. I believe that it's a white stone. And I don't know what kind of stone it is. Is that anthropomorphic language just simply trying to describe something that we can't even begin to grasp? I do know this. I believe that whenever, if you have the privilege to to receive that white stone, you will be overwhelmed and excited that your husband bought you as his bride something incredibly special and incredibly intimate between you and him. Something special. And I want that something special. And I don't think that everybody is a recipient of all of these things. Um, It's a reward for those who haven't been compromising and living like the rest of the world for his children. I'm grateful. Again, I'm not sure which, which illustration it might be. I am not sure. I do know that all three of them are definitely valid. But all I do know is that there's something intimate and sweet about the gift that's waiting for those who've been faithful. And so God helped me to run the race in such a way that I can win. Do you know that just because you die does not necessarily mean that you finish the race? I mean, a lot of times people will go to a funeral and they'll take the Apostle Paul's word, and they'll say, oh, he's run the race, he's finished the court. Well, you might, not have, you might be over and done with, but did you finish the course that God gave you to run? God helped me to run faithfully in such a way that I can receive a winner's crown. Help me be faithful. Would you do me a favor and join me for a prayer this morning? And as we pray this morning, I just want to invite you today and ask the question, have you been born again? He's writing these letters to the church, and be part of a church doesn't just mean I, I go to services at the church. It means I've been born again. To be born again, to be born from above. A time in your life when you realize, man, I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I have this problem of sin that's separating me from God. And I want to be in right relationship to Him. And the only way I can deal with this problem of sin 
is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that he took my place on the cross. He took your place on the cross and paid the price. And the Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. It's not by works. We're saved by grace through faith. And in that moment that we get saved, we are justified. In that moment that we get saved, we enter into a covenantal relationship. Where what's his is ours. In that moment that we get saved, we have admission into the banquet feast that one of these days is going to be happening. But have you been born again? Because that's where it all begins. And if not, I just want to encourage you today to call on the name of Jesus Christ. Call on his name. Maybe you hear this morning say, man, I have, I have uh, been living a life that's full of compromise and worldly. Jesus said, man, repent. Stop, stop, and come back to me. And maybe today you just need to stop and come back. Just want to encourage you. Be obedient to what the Spirit says to you this morning. Father, thank you for this day. God, I thank you for loving us. I thank you for your goodness to us. God, I thank you that we have the privilege <clears throat> to have fellowship with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit of God. Father, thank you. Have your way. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.